welcome to another IFE podcast. This time we present a distinguished visitor lecture by Simon Hodson, the Executive Director of the International Science Council's Committee on Data. The digital revolution offers profound opportunities for science to discover previously unsuspected patterns and relationships in nature and society. From the nanoscale to the cosmic scale, and from local health systems to global sustainability. The International Science Council's Data Integration Project is tackling how integrating diverse data from globally distributed sources can help to combat infectious diseases and natural disasters and build resilient and adaptive cities. In this lecture, Simon will examine the value of data integration for research and discuss how the ISC's Committee on Data, or CoData, is preparing a major initiative to advance data-driven interdisciplinarity to address global challenges. Please enjoy this IFE lecture. So I'm Simon Hodgson, Executive Director of CoData. I'll explain a little bit what CoData is and what CoData does. I'm going to talk mostly today about an initiative that we're, we've, that's been in pilot mode for the last year or two, Data for the Planet, and that we're preparing as what we hope will become an international program under the auspices of our parent body, the International Science Council. And I'll tell you a little about what that's intending to do. In the context of that program, we have been working with three pilot case studies to look at their data challenges their difficulties in accessing data, their difficulties in using the data effectively, and trying to understand what those difficulties are in terms of combining data sets together. So I'll talk very quickly about one of the pilot case studies to give you a flavor of an, an indication of the significance of that work, why it's important, why it's meaningful on a scientific level and on a human level. And then I'll give some of the background and the context to the, to the program. So we've been working as one of the case studies with the Infectious Disease Data Observatory based at the University of Oxford. They are concerned to gather data of use by, for use by research and activists or people on the ground trying to intervene in areas affected by infectious disease, to gather the data of a number of different sorts, clinical data, clinical trials data, so patient data, clinical trials data, laboratory data, epidemiological data, and if you're trying to model the way in which an infectious disease spreads, further data is required. Environmental data, vector data, how's the, data transmit, how's the disease transmitted, transport data, population data, locations of key institutions, etc., etc. So they do sterling work trying to gather this data and accumulate it. And they face a number of challenges. Um, in particular, we were interested in working with them and the work that they've been doing about gathering data around the 2014 to 2016 Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And that was an event where there was a very considerable response from the international community and from NGOs in particular. Um, and a lot of organizations set up labs, set up at clinics. And as a part of that process, a considerable amount of data was gathered. 
something I hadn't realized uh, purely out of naivety um, until we were working with ID uh, or IDO was how, ma how many clinical trials had been conducted on the hoof, as it were, in situ with Ebola patients <clears throat> and how much clinical trials data there, there was and how significant that has been in trying to understand the, the, the epidemic. So considerable international um, engagement and then where is the data now? Where is the data now? A significant proportion of those data went back from West Africa with the NGOs and the other organizations that were engaged. And very little of it has been made, has been indexed or cataloged. There are issues about data sharing, of course, where it has personal information. But even the high-level uh, high aspects of those data, which could be very well shared, have not been. Study from Elizabeth Pisani and Co. estimates that 65% of the study data that was gathered during that outbreak has not been shared. So that means the data underpinning published research on, um, on the Ebola outbreak. And quite frankly, that's not acceptable. That's not acceptable. If we're to understand those circumstances, the spread of those diseases, if we're to prepare, if we're to be able to model that, if we're to prepare for future incidents, we need to be able to accumulate those data and have for those data to be searchable and to be accessible, if necessary, under controlled circumstances, of course, but we need to be able to integrate those data with other sources I described, and that is currently not possible. Largely through what you might call helicopter research. So researchers going in, gathering the data, taking it back to Europe and North America and elsewhere, and not having it catalogued, not having the availability of that data, at least till they have published um, an article on it. And I think that's uh, priorities are in the wrong order then. As part of the pilot case study, um, also, the team at IDO looked at, looked at other issues, sort of the data availability, what we know about what data exists, to what extent those data can be accessed, and the difficulties of using those data as well. So a lot of the clinical trials data or the patient data that's gathered and other ancillary data that you might want to use are simply available as PDF images of tables, of data points. And so they need to be extracted from those images in, 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 in any case. There is a lack of... Moving more into the technical areas, the lack of metadata, the information or the data about data which describes when the data might have been gathered about what, which describes the column headings if the data has been tabulated, what exactly has been measured, the lack of a data dictionary, um, and the, as I said, the technical challenge then which they have also uncovered and pointed a um, uh, cast light on the technical challenge of integrating those clinical or patient data with other relevant data sets which might be significant to understand the outbreak. So I wanted to set the scene with that example which I hope illustrates just one case study of why these issues of data accessibility, the description of the data so you can find it, and the issues which we often call issues of interoperability and reusability understanding how the data has been gathered, understanding its provenance so that we can use it are, are of significance in a, in a real-world example. 
I'll just step back a little bit and say about the organization that, that, um, of which I'm the executive director. Codators existed since 1966. Um, since that time, we've done various pieces of work and had various activities on the role and the quality and the availability of data for many areas of, of research. Initially, we focused a lot on the physical sciences and material, uh, material sciences, but as our remit has expanded, so, so has, a, so has our, our scope. We now communicate our priorities and our, our strategic priorities through these four pillars of activity. We do a lot of work on data policies, and we've published a great deal in the last five years on, on data policy issues. We do a lot of work on data science. We have task groups on particular issues of, of data science, and we also publish the Data Science Journal and run regular uh, conferences. We do a lot of work on data skills, data skills training, and have a program in partnership with the, with the Research Data Alliance of short two-week courses of foundational data skills for all researchers. And we're also looking at um, data skills for data stewards and how we can expand uh, that program. We're also doing some work on definitions and terminology around data competences, which we hope will be of foundational utility in helping people to construct programs, curricula around data skills, and in discovering training materials, which may be of use. And then finally, um, this idea of data good practices. We have had a program over the last three years um, with the South African government to establish a African, a pan-African open science platform. Open science, e-science are important ways, additional ways of doing or ways of reinforcing research at the moment. We're doing a, also a review, a 20-year review of GBIT, the Global Biodiversity Information Facility, and we're trying to establish this program on, on data integration or how we work with research areas that are fundamentally multidisciplinary. And that's the theme uh, data of the, for the planet. I'm very quickly going to talk about something else that is of importance um, that CoData uh, delivers, and, and some, sometimes we're, we're as much known for this as all the other activities. Codata has a task group called the Task Group on Fundamental Physical Constants that every three to four years accumulates all the metrology data for particular physical constants, things like the Planck constant, the speed of light, the Boltzmann constant, Avogadro constant, etc. Accumulates those data from metrology labs around the world, works out a mean or a recommended value, and then publishes these little, these little wallet cards. I would hand these out, but they're, they're, they're actually now out of date because of what I'm going to, going to uh, <laughs> tell you about. In November, the, um, the International Bureau of Weights and Measures decided to complete the alignment of the SI, SI system of units not with physical examples, so for a long time we've not had a meter, it's been proportionate to the distance of, uh, uh, distance of light and time. So certain, element, certain units of measure in the SI system are now proportional not to physical objects, the kilogram there which you see on the screen, but to, it's worked out mathematically in relation to Planck's constant. And Planck's constant is defined by this codata test group. 
So anything now which weighs an object and refers to the internationally recognized kilogram, refers mathematically to the to Planck's constant, depends upon a piece of work which is conducted by a codata task group. I don't want to sound vainglorious, but I think that's a pretty incredible contribution to, um, to science and, and, and society. It's a pretty big impact when we consider that that task group is 12 experts. No, it's more than that, but it's a number of experts around the world which accumulate these data and, 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 and work it out for us. Codata, as I said, is part of the International Science Council, and there has been transformations in that space as well. The International Science Council, the origins of that were established in the 1930s as the International Council of Scientific Unions. They were an umbrella body for those international scientific unions which represent a particular discipline of research globally. So there's the International Union of Geodesy and Geophysics, the International Union of, uh, of Geological Sciences, etc., etc. Almost any area of research the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, which this year is the International Year of the Periodical Table, as we're in a chemistry um, lecture theatre, I should mention that one. Um, IUPAC, International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry. All these organisations, they are also members of um, what used to be the International Council of Scientific Unions. That organisation merged with the International Social Science Council, in order to become an organization that can speak for all areas of evidence-based research and science in the proper meaning of that term. So their new slogan is that, and their new claim and the new mission is to be the global voice of science. And as such, we're the global voice of data as it relates to science, or we like to think that we, that's the role that we can play. In the last five to ten years, the precursors of that new body have sponsored and convened coordinating international research programs. And you may have heard of some of these, at least Future Earth, which is perhaps the best known of these. These are programs which have as their mission to coordinate, to create a platform for collaboration and discussion among scientists around the world on particular grand challenge research areas. Future Earth for global sustainability for climate change adaptation, integrated research on disaster risk, and urban health and well-being a systems approach. Now, what these have in common is that holistic approach, integrated research on disaster risk, a systems approach. They are necessarily multidisciplinary. These are grand challenge research areas which have global importance. They're not just for research for the sake of it, for Blue Skies research. They're also to find solutions that can be implemented. And because of the nature of the subject and the need to implement things, they rely upon a collaboration between people working in the traditional natural and physical and biological sciences, for example, and people working in the social sciences. They have to take a multidisciplinary approach. They have to gather data from many different sources. And therefore, they face at the heart of their challenge those issues that I tried to highlight earlier with Ido. How do you integrate these data from many different sources? 
I'm going to spend a few slides talking about the very general issues and people that have talked about this. This is of, um, a report from the, um, the United Nations uh, Special Envoy um, on a world that counts. And I just want to mention this quickly because of the title, which is obviously a play on words. It's a world that counts, a world that matters. It's important. We just came from the lunch talk by Al Gore, who was insisting that we can, you know, there is a problem of climate change. We can do something about it. Will we do something about it? Well, we will if we think the world counts and the future of the world counts and the, the future generations count. But also, if those changes are going to happen, then we need a world that counts in the sense of it measures itself in order to understand itself, in order to understand what changes need to be made. I just wanted to measure, uh, say that because I like that metaphor, and it points at the need to gather data so that we understand the, the world and to be able to use those data effectively. We sometimes hear from the commercial sector is data the new oil. I think come, having come from that talk by Al Gore, we should revise that sort of metaphor. But I don't mean that just in a, a glib way. There is actually a, a, a way in which this, what amounts to commercial slogan making, is profoundly wrong. Yes, the more you refine oil, the greater value it has. Yes, the more you refine data in terms of describing it, adding further information to it, the more value it has because the more utility it has. But there's a clear and obvious difference in that data are not exhausted when you use them. They can be used infinite number of times. And this is very important to remember. They're non-rivalrous. My use of the data does not stop your use of the data. And this is one of the important arguments for data being as open as possible. We're not saying the data should always be open in every circumstance. There are some very good reasons for protecting data, for personal security or indeed IP reasons in some instances. But many data are not susceptible to those reasons for needing to protect them and therefore should be as open as possible. Because we can extract information and different information from them by reusing them again. We also hear a lot about big data. And again, often from the commercial world, about how big data and machine learning, AI, if you will, can help us extract information from those data. And I'm not here to debunk that. There are many instances where big data, data gathered by sensor networks, by the Internet of Things, by the considerable data production capacity of remote sensing are going to be incredibly important for understanding the, the planet. And we will only be able to extract information from those vast data sets through machine learning. But if we just talk about that, then we're missing um, an important part of our scope and what we need to better understand the world. I very much like the title of this book, and the author is well known to, to um, a number of people in the, in the data community, and I, I know to some people in, 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 this, in this room. It's, and I'm just going to talk about the title. There's a lot more in the, in the book which is, which is worth looking at, but just that title, Big Data, 
little data. The sort of data which is gathered painstakingly and described painstakingly and is an accurate, important, sometimes unrepeatable observation of something that occurred on this planet, whether it's human or physical or natural occurrence. Those data have incredible value and incredible richness and need to be looked after very carefully and need to be enriched and reused and made available. And also, I think it's really important that we should not forget that in these, in these times when you talk about big data and the data tsunami and data overload and all the volumes and the increase in the, and the amount of data that we have in the world, that genuinely to understand certain circumstances, certain processes of the planet, sometimes we just don't have the data we need. Sometimes we have no data. And it's, important, it's very important to remember that because that drives the way in which we gather the data and it drives the, the, the programs of science which we, we need in hand. FAIR. FAIR is an attempt to communicate in an accessible way the attributes which are necessary for data to have maximum utility. And it is argued, therefore, the data should be findable, no utility if you can't find it, accessible, sometimes under controlled circumstances. It's not the same as open. Interoperable, you can, be, you can combine the data with other sources and reusable. Um, I think I've gone through already in, in high-level terms the, the definitions, but I will also point to a report that I chaired last year for the European Commission which takes the FAIR principles and then asks, how do we put this into practice in a holistic and systemic way in the science system? What do we need in order that data should be findable? We need the metadata for discovery. We need the persistent identifier so that the data can be unambiguously identified. What mechanisms do we need for data to be accessed by humans and by the machines that those humans use, the algorithms that they use? What do we need for interoperation and, and, and reusability? And on that theme, I want to mention something that was announced um, earlier this week, which is the AGU, the American Geophysical Union, had a project over the last year or so um, called the Enabling Fair Data Project. I made one step in one community towards making data more fair, and that was to require and to achieve an agreement between the key journals in the geophysical space, in the earth sciences space, that those journals would require that when an article is published, that the author also makes the data available via a trusted repository, where those data can be made available, and if they need to be restricted, then, then, then so be it. But they should at least be accessible to um, authorized people if there's a need to protect those data. That's a significant step, but it's a, a necessary but insufficient step. So having introduced the sort of work that we're doing with the Ebola example, given some of the background about co-data and talked about these general issues of the reusability of data, why that's important, and of fair data, I'll talk a little bit about the program that, that we've been designing and preparing over the, over the last um, year and a half to two years. So remember those grand challenge multidisciplinary research areas and the challenge that they face at their heart, exemplified by the Ebola research, 
of gathering data from many different sources and facing this issue of how to integrate those data, how to ensure that those data interoperate. We'd identified that as a challenge, and indeed, um, that had been um, an issue that had been raised at one of our general assemblies and conferences by, um, by the Australian um, National Committee, and that's part of the reason why I've been here for this last week, is to follow through with, um, with, 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 with that initiative as we've, um, as we've been designing it. Over the last two years, we've run a series of workshops in various locations, um, including in Paris during a heat wave, which is why, um, why everyone's there with, with uh, their ice creams, to design the, pro the program and to identify a number of pilot case studies, which would help us understand these issues, which we know are issues, but understand precisely how they play out in particular research areas. With the merger of the International Science Council as well, then we have been asked to prepare this as part of a new science action plan, so I'll say a little bit about that. From that series of workshops, we identified three case studies that we've been working with over the last year or so. Infectious diseases, as already mentioned, disaster risk reduction, and particularly in relation to data reporting for the Sendai process and uh, resilient cities, and we've been working with a number of organizations in, in that context. The methodology essentially is to work with those case studies to run to understand their data challenges and to support the identification of solutions we hope with um, international data science ex expertise and the idea that we would identify solutions which would be transferable across those three domains and hopefully identify better practices which can be, can be run across each of those um, domains and can inform future, future research areas. It's important to stress that those were three pilot case studies which we identified through the work we had done. They're not the only research areas that we want to work with and they're not the only research areas that we will um, work with. Because I list those areas, people often ask me, are those the only areas that you're interested in? No, no, of course not, of course not. There's almost infinite research areas that face these very same problems. Through happenstance, we identified these people, these areas that we want to work with, but as we're designing the program over the next two years, we hope to add uh, further areas. And we have a high-level methodology whereby we hope that the findings of our work with particular pilot case studies can then be fed into their research practice and ultimately in that cyclical way improve their research outcomes. One of the key steps with these in, a, in our methodology and our process has been to work closely with the researchers in, with the, with the, um, who, are, who are pursuing these pilot case studies. What are the fundamental questions you're trying to ask and what are the solutions you're trying to identify in the real world issue with Ebola or with resilient cities? What data, therefore, are you, do you need to gather? Can you access it? What are the issues in accessing it? And then some of the more technical questions. What format are they encoded in? How are they described? What metadata specifications are they using? Are there any controlled vocabularies which define what precisely has been measured and how do those 
controlled or even uncontrolled vocabularies, as is often the case, how do they relate to more standardized versions such that the data can be integrated? A key part of that inevitably is intensive workshopping with those case studies. And we've done that through a Dagstuhl workshop. Dagstuhl is an institute of the Leibniz Foundation in Germany. And the Dagstuhl site is used for week-long intensive workshops of, of precisely this nature. It's very difficult to get space there, and we've been very fortunate um, to, be, to, to have been able to do so in partnership with the Data Documentation Initiative, which is a key social science data standard. I'll remind you of, of this slide and those, those issues identified, or those challenges identified by the, um, the Ebola and the infectious disease um, case study. So for the next three to four slides, I'm going to go through fairly briefly the findings from these case studies. And I want to make clear that, that these are preliminary. In many, level, in many respects, they're, they're the sort of thing we could have predicted even before, but it's important to go through this process with the people involved. Because some of it we know. You know, we know that we need better specific data specifications. We know that the data need to be better described so they can be available. But it's important to do this work. And I think there are some findings and outcomes of this work that are, that are, more, um, you know, that are more original. So for all three case studies, FAIR has provided a useful language to communicate the emergent issues. And the adoption of the FAIR principles in each of these research areas does seem to be a way forward. For the infectious disease data, clearly, the more we can encode the data as, if it's tabular data, as CSV, which is easily transferable and understood, rather than as an image or any other format um, that's used for simple uh, tabular data, the better. There is a need for specification of metadata and for data dictionaries. And then we move very quickly into the human issues. The human issues that facilitate the application of technical solutions which aren't really that complicated and which are readily available. Which is the community involved applying good principles of data sharing and data documentation, the implementation of data repositories, and in the case of the infectious disease outbreaks, a considerable change in ethos. And I think I would hope an acceptation that it's not acceptable, an understanding that it's not acceptable to take the data away and only release high-level descriptions of it when the article is published. And that means a long-term process of consensus building both in terms of the ethos and in terms of the adoption of appropriate data and metadata standards, etc. We're going to be doing further work with that group and particularly with, with groups doing modeling on infectious disease data to better understand that, those circumstances. For the city's case study, we were working with um, a group called Resilience Brokers who have a data platform called Resilience.io. 
which is very interesting. It's a data modeling or a, a scenario modeling platform. It uses agent-based modeling. Um, it integrates data from many different sources, and then they tweak the parameters, and they try to run models as to what would happen if you make particular changes um, uh, um, according to the input and output, output data. We, use, we looked at two of their case studies, one in Accra in Ghana, and which was intended to understand Accra's, Ghana's, Accra's water need um, at a relatively fine-grained level, region, uh, sector by sector within the city, and with uh, Medellin in Colombia on the relationship between pollution, health outcomes, and, and economic impact. The Ghana case study that they, that they shared with us and which we, we examined um, required very considerable and labor-intensive data gathering. The data just simply wasn't there. Um, and as I say, it was modeling of water needs by, by, um, by, by dis district. Their outcomes of that are really, really instructive. It demonstrates that their agent-based modeling system seems to be appropriate for that sort of case study. And it was very well received by the authorities that they worked with and, um, and the people that they worked with in, in Accra. It is very labor intensive. And one of the challenges we're facing with this sort of research is the time invested in data management and in data cleaning and data wrangling of various sorts. There's a report for the European Commission by PwC which estimates that in, in many research groups that can be up to 80% of effort spent on wrangling data. Partly that's because we don't have apply from the outset appropriate data standards. We change them halfway through. We have to change the data, etc., etc. Some of it can doubtless be improved through automation of some aspects of data management and data wrangling. But again, similar findings that um, we need improved data stewardship, the application of the FAIR principles, improved semantics would greatly assist the way in which the data is integrated to the resilience IO, IO system. The work with uh, Medellin um, is at an earlier stage, but shows very very, very similar, very similar findings. Medellin has, is a city that's been very forward-looking about open data, has been trying to gather and publish lots of open data. They've got quite an impressive open data collection, uh, particularly on key, in relation to key indicators um, that are important for the city. Um, nevertheless, we found in working with them that there are still considerable shortfall in the way the data is described for the sort of use cases that we had identified with resilience brokers and for, for that sort of application. And finally, the third case study with um, looking at issues around reporting for the Sendai process for disaster risk reduction. And there we're working with, um, with a number of people. We have a task group on disaster risk data. Um, and with Virginia Murray, who's from Public Health England, and who's a member of our executive committee and was the chair of the, what was the UNISDR um, STAG, which is Scientific and Technical Advisory Committee. So Sendai is a reporting framework which is designed, and, and 
Most nations in the world have signed up to it. To establish a process whereby reporting the loss due to particular disasters will cast light upon those losses and enable governments better to leverage investment to build in resilience. So it's a reporting process a little bit like the Sustainable Development Goals, designed to help and achieve change. The things that need to be reported include mortality due to a given disaster, economic loss under various categories, etc. Even reporting those high-level indicators is extremely challenging and is inconsistent across governments and, I learned this week, is inconsistent uh, across Australian states. One of the studies that Virginia and her team did was on mortality data. And there we encounter inconsistency and different sources of record keeping, inconsistencies of attribution of the cause of death. And the obvious example that, that Virginia gives is someone dies of electrocution. Is that properly attributed to the disaster which caused the tree to bring down the power line, or is it counted as a death by electrocution? So those definitional issues and the way and the procedural issues on the way things are reported are of huge importance, let alone the way that the data are gathered, integrated, and then, and then further communicated and, and used. There are many issues in reporting disaster risk data and disaster loss data. One of the concrete steps that's come directly out of um, the work of that, of that case study is um, the recommendation and then the immediate implementation of the need for a technical working group to review the hazard terminology. So at least we have a controlled vocabulary that defines, first of all, the hazard types, what sort of disasters are we reporting against, and then gives more effective definitions of the data types that we're, that we're reporting and what, and as an attempt to increase the consistency of, of reporting. Um, and that team have, have written uh, uh, an article which is, which is in production at the moment which looks at the issues around developing data protocols for exchanging data and metadata in, in Sendai reporting. So we've been doing that sort of work for the last year and a half. Um, and that has been with the objective of preparing um, a program proposal for the International Science Council. Um, a draft of that was shared with the International Science Council's executive board earlier this year um, and was, was, was well received. And a revised version will be considered um, by at their executive board meeting um, later this month. We're optimistic that we'll get the green light and some further seed funding to spend the next year and a half designing that program and putting it into, into practice. And so one of the reasons that I've been here in Australia is to speak with, um, with Australia, potential Australian partners on the processes for setting up an international program on these, on these issues. I indicate five work packages there, essentially five areas of activity um, that we, the, that will be the focus of that, of that activity. 
mobilization of expertise in the science of data and support of those interdisciplinary um, program areas. Something that I've not touched on a great deal is how can programmatic data integration, how can machine learning assist us in a targeted way, um, not pretending that it'll be a silver bullet, but in a targeted way in some of these challenges. Um, above all, and why it's in red, this task of identifying documentation and recommending good practices, particularly for those uh, multidisciplinary research areas. Continuing those case studies and broadening the range of those case studies and working with particular disciplinary areas outside those case studies in order to inculcate and develop good practices there. We very much have this vision for a broad international program. We hope that that work will be taken forward in collaboration with partners, that that will appeal to institutions and existing research groups to contribute, but we also hope to set up international program offices, perhaps on a distributed model, um, to, to take that forward. Um, that's the vision. It's necessary to talk about these visions before they become reality, and one of our tasks over the next um, year and a half or so is to, is to get feedback, is to understand whether that vision inspires and whether there are mechanisms by which organizations and research institutions around the world can contribute to it, either financially, by in-kind, through partnership and, and, and collaboration. And we hope that it will be genuinely global as well, not just in the English-speaking world. Um, we've got very strong contacts in East, East Asia, in Africa, in Latin America and elsewhere. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and also on Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.